Hey, welcome to the Data-Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business success using data. I'm Aaron Norris, and with us today is co-host Sean O'Toole. Welcome, Sean. Hey, Aaron. Great to be here. Oh, my goodness. A new adventure. Why the heck are we doing another real estate podcast? <laughs> <laughs> There's certainly a lot out there. Um, but a lot of folks aren't data-driven, and I'm not hearing enough about that. I think, and it covers such a broad uh, set of topics across real estate that, you know, I think it's, I I think it's needed still. I am so excited to be with Property Radar. I've been stewing in data for the last 15 years. I'm a fellow data nerd, so I'm, I'm very excited to tackle this Um, and all the variety of topics that that can encompass. I think data-driven real estate makes it sound like we're just going to talk about real estate, but so many different things impact real estate, which I think is why I'm so excited. We get to cover so many different topics and strategies and whatnot. I guess not only do so many things impact real estate, but real estate impacts so much of our daily lives. That's true. And now during COVID-19 and so much going on in the world, we're in an election season, man, we're going to get to cover a lot of juicy stuff just this year alone. Um, There's very little as important as housing and basic shelter and yeah. The hierarchy of need. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Um, let's cover really quick. Maybe some people land on this channel and they've never, they don't know either of us. How did you even fall into real estate and why, why are you here? Real estate is an asset class. How did you land here? Well, you know, I was in uh, tech, three different startups in uh, the Bay Area. And uh, after the dot-com crash, uh, you know, took a little break. Uh, from tech and was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. I'd always done startups and 2000 wasn't a great time to start a tech company. And and actually got introduced to somebody uh, flipping foreclosures and uh, they said, hey, you should go write some software for him. There weren't very many people doing that. I didn't really have much interest. Um, But, you know, I think everybody has a little curiosity about foreclosures and buying foreclosures. And I went to talk to him and uh, ended up really interested in the, uh, the business and ended up flipping uh, 150 uh, properties. And uh, total, total accident wasn't in the plan at all. Now, you're talking about trustee sale, right? Trustee sales, yeah, foreclosure sales in California. And that is not an easy piece of the business to get into right out of the gate. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's the toughest. It's pretty much the toughest way to invest in property. And, and it really helped that I was a very analytic, data-driven person because out of all the ways to invest in real estate, it is the most data-driven. So it was kind of uh, perfect. And really, you, <laughs> yeah, you also didn't plan to be in real estate. I did not. I was uh Let's see. I, I, I grew up in the family fix and flip business. So rehab. You had a background. My dad. Yeah. The very first memory I have is sucking cockroaches off the wall with a vacuum as my family members were pulling up carpet out of a house that was infested with cockroaches is an understatement because um, I was doing it all day. It was that bad. <laughs> oh, man. No wonder I did so well in New York. I'm not as great, afraid of bugs and rats. Um, yeah, but growing up, I ended up in the arts. So I moved to New York City to pursue, you know, Broadway. Um, the only weird thing is I fell into acquisition and merger presentations at a Wall Street company. And I knew there was something wrong with me when I'm like, this is really interesting. And that's where I learned to do charts and graphs. And I just sort of fell in love with the data piece. Um, ended up moving back to California. I had a family member get ill. 
I was never expecting to move back to California and uh, work for an architectural lighting firm. And I just sort of fell in love with real estate and all the different facets. I've always loved construction. And then I was about to go back to a Wall Street company when dad invited me in 05. He wanted to write a report called The California Crash. I just happened to know how to create a 400-page book with a heck of a lot of charts and the rest is history. So, <laughs> yes, lots and lots of data over the 15 years. Well, that, that is something we both have in common, right? We both came to the conclusion that the real estate market was in trouble at the end of 2005. And your dad probably gets credit for that more than you do. But you helped him make that case and you helped him do all the research and put that presentation together. And you saved hundreds of people from losing their life savings and and you tried to save lots of others that didn't listen but uh i hear both of those conversations a lot well how did you land on that i mean at the time i mean you had some of the biggest economists in the country um that were butting up against that and the media everybody was just like real estate is the darling you breathe and you make money how did you how did you land there you know i I sold a house in Stockton to um, a maid at a hotel and her husband was a field worker. And, um, you know, both hardworking, honest, awesome people, but they were buying a $450,000 house, both barely making more than minimum wage. And the only reason they could afford it was because of a pay option arm, mm-hmm. uh, which gave it a very low initial payment. And the pay option arm was actually a great mortgage product. I had one when I was 18. I bought my first house when I was 18. And we can talk more about that later. But um, it, uh, it was a great product, but it got misused during the crisis in that they qualified people based on this low temporary payment. And I looked at this and I went, these folks aren't going to be able to make this payment. This isn't going to work. And it really is like, I don't, I don't even feel good about selling them this house. Like I, I want out. This isn't okay. And um, that was really the first indicator to me. And then there was some others. Uh, you know, I started to see uh, new construction subdivisions where suddenly they were offering a free swimming pool. And I'm like, but Joe down the street who had bad credit and got 100% financing, he didn't get a free swimming pool. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't care about his credit. So when he doesn't get a free swimming pool, he's going to say, screw this, I'm not making my payment. And anyways, it was just, it was a house of cards, which was, you know, that first 60 minutes uh, episode that was, that covered this was called the house of cards. And it really, it was clear to me at the end of 2005, it was a huge house of cards and it was going to fail. Did you share your opinion with a lot of people? I did not do what your dad did, right? Your dad got out there and really said, Hey, everybody, I instead went kind of the other direction. I thought I wasn't keeping it secret by any means, but like, I tried to put together the big short, right? Mm -hmm. I went and rounded up some Wall Street friends and the rest and showed them the data and said, here's what's coming. And I want to put my life savings into shorting New Century, uh, Countrywide, and and these various lenders. And uh, had I not 
gotten talked out of it, uh, foreclosure radar <laughs> and property radar would have never had, uh, had existed because I'd, I'd own a private island. <laughs> right. Gosh darn it. Well, I, I didn't know as much about the market timing stuff. And I, I know dad how, how much work he spent putting those 400 pages together when we did. And he got a lot of flack. It wasn't fun. I mean, we did the news media round line and we were sort of the opposite end of the spectrum because all the other economists were saying it was good. But the one that stood out for me the most was the building industry. Um, John Burns had us out at the Builders Association. And in 05, dad told them, if I were you, I'd sell everything and buy everything 50% off in a few years. And he was almost laughed off stage because <laughs> it, it was set up as a debate. And the other guy... Um, at the time, started a PowerPoint presentation with the cute little girl blowing a big bubblegum bubble. And it was just like, oh, this is going to be a soft landing. Um, but I just remember that feeling. And he only got invited back in 06 uh, up against the uh, Wall Street builder analyst because the builders started to get uncomfortable. And the, the feeling was very different that year. But, you know, just a lot of people weren't wanting to listen because it was so good. Timing is so important. Um, and if you're not data-driven, it's so easy to be emotional. So you, you and I have mentioned your dad a couple of times, just really quickly, Bruce Norris, of oh, yeah. Norris Group, famous <laughs> hard money lender and, and really built uh, a big reputation by going out and letting people know, at least in California and especially Southern California. So anyways, just, I, I, just a shout out to Bruce because he... Uh, he uh, definitely, uh, I think, was probably one of the most po vocal folks in the United States on getting out there uh, pre-crisis. And uh, I, uh, after not doing the big short, started a company called Foreclosure Radar, um, which was very well-timed uh, to help people, to help realtors and real estate investors, government agencies, and others understand what was going on with uh, foreclosures. But um, obviously, that's that that uh yeah that's how we got here right did you did you develop that tool while you were buying at the courthouse steps or yeah initially i built it for myself um for those in the software industry i built it originally as a single tenant uh, product right it was made for me and only me and so um i rebuilt it from scratch to be a multi-tenant uh architecture um and uh so so yeah, uh, I spent 2006 rebuilding it and launched it in 2007, just ahead of the, uh, the foreclosure crisis. Obviously, you know, we'll talk foreclosures and lots of stuff, but there's lots of topics we're going to touch on here, right? With That's what I'm so excited about. Driven Real Estate Podcast. Yeah, we don't have to just talk about economics. And one of the things that I, I love the most is sort of looking outside of real estate and things that can impact real estate. And I think that's why... Uh, at the Norris Group had this event called I Survive Real Estate and you were the most frequently requested guest star. <laughs> I think you did 10 um, out of the 12 that we've done uh, since 08. And it was an homage to the time. In 2008, we started I Survive Real Estate. And I Survive raised an awful lot of money. I mean, it was great, brought all the real estate investor clubs together, but it raised an awful lot of money for charities. Uh, first Cancer and then Children's, Make-A-Wish, St. Jude's. So yeah, pretty awesome. And it and being able to talk about all the strange topics and you were always able to talk very succinctly about things outside of real estate. I I will never forget the the time that you brought up 3D printing. You bought up 3D printing to your son and then you start thinking about okay, well, 
if I'm a Home Depot and I don't have to have an entire section of, you know, screws and bolts because I can print them on demand. I mean, I just love talking about the future. Is there anything, what are some of the key things that you look at that can impact real estate um, sort of in the future and then technology sector? Yeah, you know, I think there's just so many different uh, things. I think Hyperloop's really interesting. Um, you know, I was traveling uh, one time from uh, Reno to Vegas, right? And you go down this long section of road and it, it's dead town, dead town. Town with restaurants and gas stations, dead town, dead town. Town with gas stations and restaurants. And you're like, who picked which of these towns thrived and which ones died and why did the ones that died die right what happened and i had this epiphany that it was um fuel economy and range on cars and right and back in history when the fuel economy was lower and the range of a car was less you needed each one of those towns to refill and you were going slower and you needed to refuel and, and maybe get some food and whatever. And as the range of cars improved and the speed of cars improved, right, the need for those towns decreased. Right. And you left ghost towns in their wake. And um, so you think about Hyperloop, which theoretically you're traveling 700 miles an hour, right? And... If you can go from LA to San Francisco at 700 miles an hour, is there a need for a stop anywhere in between, right? Right. Uh, and what does that do for all those communities and all those economies if, you know, stuff, people aren't flowing back and forth on those routes and going into the, the gas stations and the local stores and, you know, the fast food places and the rest? I, I think there's, you know, so I think transportation, vertical takeoff and landing, you know, aircraft um, changes so much, right? Like, and I don't think people really are fully appreciating how much of an impact transportation has on housing. So just as one example. Well, and then you've got the ju juxtaposition of COVID-19 and a lot of conversation about people rethinking their urban existence. And this happened early on in COVID-19 where just even if you look at LA versus Riverside County, Riverside was one of the first that, ended up coming out with a penalty. Um, I was talking to some investors last weekend who had an a Airbnb and they have a, a neighbor that's not very happy about it. And I asked them if they continued renting it. They're like, oh no, it, was, it would have been thousands of dollars because the neighbor was on watch. <laughs> so you had LA people trying to escape the urban environment. But so you've got something like a Hyperloop and then are we rethinking urbanization and do we want to live in a rural environment, what makes up a good city? Oh, right. Good stuff. And, you know, most people that talk about wanting to improving affordable housing, their big answer is vertical. Got to go vertical. Vertical right. de development, greater density, right? In a COVID-19, is vertical development, greater density, packing a bunch of people into elevators? I, I don't know that that's, that's the answer, right? So I, I think there's, there's a lot to think about, uh, with that. And I think re-ruralization, I don't think people fully realize with work from home, you know, now it's easier to go be someplace where maybe work isn't down the street, right? Or work isn't within commuting distance. So that enables some re-ruralization. But I think there's a bigger one, which is SpaceX and others are now launching 
low Earth orbit satellites. And low Earth orbit satellites could bring high speed internet to just about everywhere. And now you can be out in the woods and be doing this podcast and nobody would know you're miles away from everything, especially with your blue background. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You never know. And you could swap out the the background as a, you know, exactly. I I just, being able to go to CES the last few years, um, I, I love studying home technology, artificial intelligence, virtual reality. And I'm constantly running it through the filter of, of how is this going to change how real estate happens. So one of the things and a book I just bought is The Future of Education, talking about how some of these convergence of technologies is going to change. What if you're in a market like Riverside? We have four universities. What if we don't need four universities? And we're reliant on 50,000 students coming in every year. Um, and you don't see something like that coming and in time to get out as a real estate investor. I just yeah. love this stuff. All yeah. right. So we get to cover we lots. Also just learned though, you know, what, a, what kind of a failure we still are at remote education, right? Like, I mean, I think a lot of people just learned that remote education is not ready for prime time, especially with the younger kids. Yeah, I, I agreed. I don't think parents are well-equipped and all of a sudden, probably teachers are going to be much more appreciated as soon as they're allowed to take kids back for sure. So. I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So we're going to get to cover lots about the future. I think marketing is another really big passion, certainly of mine, um, uh, using data. It's gotten, for me, it's very much a, con, uh, a conversation about Wall Street versus Main Street. Um, I, I saw on the website somewhere you sort of had a, a quote saying that Wall Street was really destroying small business. Um, Why are you so passionate about small business, by the way? Well, you know, small business is who gives to the local soccer team and the, you know, football team and supports the local economy and supports the local nonprofits and all the things that do good in your area. They also employ folks locally and, um, you know, they create wealth locally and that wealth gets respent locally. And uh, sorry about that. And, um, you know, if uh, to the degree that that wealth gets sent off to big companies someplace else, you know, that's how communities die, right? It's, it's the old joke about, you know, thriving small town, Walmart comes to town. Everybody starts shopping at the Walmart. All the local businesses go out of business. Nobody has jobs anymore. Nobody shop at the Walmart. The Walmart goes out of business and the end of the town, right? And and I mean, it's an oversimplification, but um, you think about that with e-commerce and Amazon and the rest, right? But I'm a free markets guy. Like I'm not saying, hey, there shouldn't be a Walmart or hey, there shouldn't be an Amazon, But what I do think is it's important for small businesses to have the same tools and the same abilities and the same capabilities and a chance to compete and the chance to do things. I love the term do things that don't scale. That's something that got popular in my business, the tech world, Mm -hmm. right? Like to get a business going, you got to go do things that don't scale, right? Like Airbnb, um, the founders of that are famous for having like drove around and take pictures of each house to make sure that each one looked really good. Now you can't do that on large scale, but when you're starting the company, you have to. 
And local businesses can do things that don't scale and they can differentiate themselves. I think that's what our industry is really going to need to focus on too. It's really that qualitative versus quantitative uh, conversation, that quality piece being so key because quality doesn't always scale. Um, especially those high touch points and data coming out from the Builders Association, the National Association of Realtors shows that even Gen Z, Gen Z is looking at buying sooner than their uh, Gen um, Gen Y cohorts, uh, millennials. Uh, for the most part, they want to use realtors. Uh, so it's just us using that kind of data to more effectively talk to the people that we're trying to reach. So you've got these Wall Street companies that have that kind of data and how do we use Main Street get more sophisticated in what we're doing. Well, you know, I think, I think something that, you know, I fell into it. I came out of, um, you know, Silicon Valley tech companies using data to drive everything. And by happenstance ended up working in the foreclosure business and dove into public records to find foreclosures. Right. At first I was just like looking in the newspapers. Right. And, and then I realized I would go down to the steps and they'd be calling some address. And I'm like, that wasn't in the newspaper. Well, these things can postpone for a while. Oh, so I got to go look in the old newspapers. So I go look in the old newspapers and I'm down at the steps and they call an address. And I'm like, well, they didn't call that one. But it wasn't in that newspaper. It was in some little tiny newspaper because they wanted to hide the fact that it was going to foreclosure. Oh, man. Then I discovered the county recorder's office and that every single one had to be recorded there by law. And, okay, now I've got a reliable source of data. And holy moly, all this other data that's there too. And the county assessor's office and the county court clerk and the rest. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is a treasure trove, especially for local businesses. And I learned later that big businesses do use this, right? If you take out a home equity line of credit on your house, you're probably going to get an ad from Home Depot. You're not going to get an ad from your local hardware store, from your local home furnishing store, your local swimming pool dealer. Why not? Right. That data is there. And, um, you know, so with foreclosure radar, you know, we started surfacing that public records data. And now with property radar, that's really the big goal is to make that you can know every single customer in your market by name, have some idea of, you know, the amount of, of uh, net worth or income that they have um, and know how to reach them and know how long they've lived there. Like there's a lot of that stuff that's just public record and is freely accessible, um, you know, to use. Um, so, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity there to level the playing field for, Main Street. Unfortunately, where Main Street's going right now is relying more and more on big tech companies like Google to send them business or Yelp to send them business or Amazon to send them business. Right. And I think they can create their own. I'm excited. It's the democratization of data. Um, but, you know, kudos to Property Radar. It's really changed the game as far as making it usable and all in one place. You know, it may be publicly available, but <laughs> the thought of going down to your local <laughs> county recorder's office, you're like, what? Um, it, was, it was pretty tough. And that, that is, I realized the value of doing it for others, <laughs> for sure. Because I did it myself for quite a while and it's tough. Well, and I, I, 
there's sort of a, a philosophy internally about chocolate versus peanut butter, which I really like. And uh, I've been talking about for years. So I think there's room for everybody in real estate and it's just finding out what you bring to the table. And then if right. you combine it, the, the where the peanut butter is, is sort of the data that allows you to connect with the consumer. So I am very much looking forward to dissecting a lot of different channels and marketing channels, exploring funnels, um, maybe specific niches. And that leads into the next topic that we're going to cover a lot of strategies. Um, Yeah. um, I was just going to say, you know, and, and, you know, I think for those just tuning in or or wanting to learn what what we're trying to cover here with the data driven real estate podcast, right. Is, really for any property centric business. So realtors, real estate investors, commercial brokers, property managers, home services companies, like roofers, solar, right? All the rest, like we're going to get into this podcast. Like how do they reach local customers? What are the best methods? How can they do it themselves? How can they cut out that middleman intermediary that they have to buy leads from today that can turn them off tomorrow because somebody else is going to pay more, right? Like, I think all of those kinds of how you build and grow a small business in a local town, you know, or towns, like, you know, and compete with the big guy. And whether it's using public records or other data-driven approaches, you know, is definitely a key key piece of what this podcast is going to be about. And I'm going to love that piece. I'm already thinking of some very unique guests that we can have. Um, Strategies, uh, market timing, which we'll get to in a second. Market timing often dictates the strategies that work in any specific market and they can be so different. I mean, you started with foreclosure radar and now, you know, property radar is about the people, but it just so happens right now in this moment in time, even with COVID-19, there's not a lot of distressed inventory to talk about. It's about equity sellers. Um, and that strategy, my favorite, my absolute favorite is when I talk to somebody that's been through sort of like a big guru camp, right? And they call and they're like, I'm doing REOs. And you're like, oh, are, are you? And I'm like, great. You know what? I'm going to help you out. Go online, type in Bank of America REO. They're like, all right, I'm here. I'm all, type in a city. You know, they'll type in Riverside. They're like, they're there's five among there's five. (laughs) So, you know, they've been sort of sold this idea. I'm like, listen, it's not that it doesn't ever work. It just doesn't work right now. And where you're wanting to do this, this is where the opportunity is. So it's data, it's, it's market timing and then understanding how to reach that customer. Um, Some of the big, what are some of the big strategies you're seeing right now? Let's say on the West coast. Um, Uh, most of my people are doing, let's say, you know, equity sellers and some people only do cold call. real estate investors. Yeah. For, 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 for now, let's do strategies there. So I have some people who cold call only, door knock, <laughs> some that do mailers, some that do um, SEO and SEM work, um, but it's all about the equity seller. Um, you, any other strategies you see quite a bit right now? Well, you know, I think, I think one thing is that you know, real estate's still going up right now because of a lack of supply, but it's definitely flattening, right? It's not going up as fast as it was in some of these past, right? Right. So um, we've seen people have good luck targeting folks that bought in 2009, 2010 that have had huge appreciation, Ginormous. right? 
they've they've been on the big up wild ride and now they're it's kind of flattened out and they're still having to deal with you know uh maybe a tenant that isn't that great and you know they still have uh, their job and their other things that they do and don't really have time to be a super hands-on landlord and um but to you can't evict somebody right now right you can't it's hard to get folks out and so if you're coming in as an investor saying hey i'll take all that off your hands right they can afford to sell at a discount they had such huge appreciation right so that's that's a good one there definitely is distress in the market where people need to sell you know you got folks selling one place because they're moved back in another you got some short-term rental folks that got a little over their skis and he did to downsize and scale back a little bit, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, you've got folks that want to get out of the city and move and go rural. Some of these things work for realtors too on the listing side. Um, you know, so I think some of those things are driven by, you know, COVID and the rest. And, uh, and then we've got an aging population, right? So we've got older folks who maybe it's time to downsize, but they, you know, so you can go from a you know fifteen hundred square foot house in uh, the peninsula on the Bay Area to a three thousand square foot house in Sacramento. Keep your low property tax bases, which is something most people don't know about, mm-hmm. and and put a half million bucks in the bank tax free. Uh, so you're in a nicer home. Put a half million bucks in the bank. Kept your low tax bases because you've lived in your house for twenty years. You know. Uh, you know, so there's definitely, there's definitely lots of, lots of folks still moving, lots of folks still doing stuff. You just snuck in a really good realtor um, strategy that I don't think a lot of people focus on. You, you and I talked about that about a month ago and I got on Facebook and I asked a question and there was only a few realtors who said, oh yeah, I've used this strategy. And for those that had, it was like, once. <laughs> By accident, right? Like, yeah, like oh, yeah, one of my clients did that. It's like, did you think about marketing to other people like them? Oh, no. <laughs> Gosh. Well, and I, I think that's a real key for realtors right now is if you're, you're really losing out if you don't get at least somewhat dangerous in that estate planning piece. Um, there's a lot of conversation. People have to age in place because they don't have a choice. This is definitely a way around it. And if not, starting to build those partners in other states to help them, you know, get out of the state uh, so they can be close to kids or whatever. But lots of interesting opportunities and, you know, uh, strategies come from the timing and the marketing. So I know we'll get to cover a ton of stuff there. Um, I think not just strategies on acquisition, but I think, well, I think we should also bring in, you know, to the podcast, um, some folks on the operational side, like one of the biggest epiphanies I had flipping real estate was um, something I actually learned from a grocery store guy, right? And he said, the most important metric in my business is turns on inventory, right? So the, the, the things that I put on the shelves, the faster they move off and get replaced, the more money I'm going to make over a year, right? And, I, and I'll put this in real estate terms as a flipper, right? Flipping real estate. Let's just say I've got $2 million to invest. I'm buying $250,000 homes. Well, okay, so it's more than that in California now, but let's just do that to keep the math simple. So I can afford to have eight properties in inventory at any given time. Mm -hmm. 
If I flip those in 90 days, right, I can flip for my dollars, I can flip four times a year. I'm doing 24 deals a year, right? If it takes me 180 days, I'm doing half, no, sorry, not 24, uh, 32, because it's four, four times eight, 32 deals. Yeah. If I'm doing it in 180 days, I'm only doing 16. Now, if I'm making the same amount per deal, I'm making half as much money because I took twice as long over the course of a year. And the turns on inventory is something, you know, most investors don't even think about. I'll ask an investor, they'll go, oh, I made a hundred grand on a deal. I'm like, awesome. How long did it take? And they don't bring that part up. Because if they did it in five days and it was a half million dollar deal, their ROI is pretty spectacular. Right. If they did it in two years, their ROI is kind of so-so. <laughs> You've been watching too much HDTV. I, I see your numbers. <laughs> it's asking those hard questions. So you're saying interviewing people sort of on their operation side, how to get better at maybe turning and creating a business that's more data-driven um, to drive efficiency, perhaps. Yeah, you know, we saw that a lot in the trustee sale business, um, you know, too later on, right? So as the tr trustee sale business got more competitive, uh, we saw folks... Um, starting to bring in their own, you know, rather than giving the listings to a real estate agent office, they built their own real estate office. Some built their own mortgage company. Some built their own title company, right? right. Um, and had their own construction company and all the rest. And so even if the profit on the deal broke even, they made so much money off the construction, the title, the mortgage, the brokerage, and, and all the other pieces it was still a profitable operation for them. That made it really hard for the folks that weren't doing all those things. That smells a lot like Wall Street because that's what they're all doing is vertically integrating all their services. We're going to have to come up with a hybrid term for that. Yes, <laughs> yes. Street that gets so sophisticated, they sort of act like a mini Wall Street. I like it. Yeah. No, that's a, a lot of the people at Trustee Sales specifically had to open their own brokerage um, just to save that on the sales side for sure. Yeah. Okay. That's fun. Um, and same thing, we're seeing the same thing with like realtors and teams, right? So you're bringing in teams and each person has a, has a specialty, right? You may have one person who's super good, you know, going out and networking and or involved in organizations, things like that. Somebody else is a really great marketer, right? Or maybe it's a team of good networkers that hire a marketer, right? So, you know, I think you'll see more and more of that integration, right? I, I think teams are doing the majority of deals now mm. on the, the realtor side, um, you know, home services side, the solar companies and stuff, right? Um, you're seeing more of that, you know, integration as well. So, Okay. No, that's going to be, I'm trying to think of, you know, all the interesting people we can interview there. Um. Advocacy work is another thing. Hopefully, we'll get to cover housing affordability. Um, I, I I hate that during the downturn. I don't think it was anything new that specifically the real estate investor community was getting known as the sharks. Um, and and I don't know if it's just because of the iBuyer has come hot and heavy into the market, but it feels it feels like all of a sudden the realtor community is maybe a little bit warmer to the local real estate investor because the iBuyers are on the scene. Are you feeling the same way? Yeah, perhaps. Um, you know, I, I certainly think realtors are feeling some heat um, from iBuyers and coming in. And I think it's an interesting model, right? Like, it's not fun having 
random strangers come through your house and I can just sell my house on this day, move out, hand over the keys, and then you'll come in, clean it up and you'll, you know, sell it and show it and take care of it. And I'm not there. I already have my money and moved on. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that taps something pretty interesting. I don't know. It's the only way that it can be done. I don't know that it's something that local realtors can't do. Um, if they put their minds to how to better solve problems, you know, for customers, I think there's a lot of interesting discussions we can have around that. I hope to get in some really good, um, you know, uh, guest speakers on that, talking about that, talking about what realtors can do. And then for investors, like how can you be more like an iBuyer, right? So why, when you list your house, are you doing it the old way? You have a vacant, clean, perfect house that's easy for you to stick an electronic lock on the door and have somebody, you know, back in Timbuktu, right? Logging people on versus their phone, unlocking the door and doing virtual tours, especially with COVID-19. Every single flipper should be doing that if they're flipping a house. Like there's no excuse for right? Going and eating and unlocking the door and lockbox and, you know, like, you know, there are things to learn from what these iBuyers have done. And I think there are things that the iBuyers haven't done that are still possible too, that we should be talking about. I agree. And I, I think there's a lot of opportunity to get down at the governmental level too, especially when it comes to the affordable housing. Um, I belong to a task force locally and, that was my pitch to them. You guys are not talking to real estate investors who could help you build ADUs and it doesn't cost you any money besides marketing. And, and it's a huge upside for the investor because this investor has a single family home that rents for X. They can put an ADU in the backyard pretty inexpensively and now get X plus Y mm-hmm. and improve their return on investment, help solve you know, the housing shortage in some of these places and uh, do it essentially with infill, right? Like, uh, you know, there's great upside on both sides there. I know. It's just, man, there was just this, you know, investors were the, you know, the sharks back during the downturn. And I think investor and speculators sort of got blended into one and the same. Um, So I feel like I've been in the business for over 15 years. It feels like we've been fighting that fight for a long time. So advocacy work just in the real estate space in general is just a lot of fun. I, I love covering it from different angles, but especially coming to as a you know affordable housing, um, maybe helping electeds, understanding how governments have to think. Like California just redid their arena numbers, their affordable housing goals. You've got some cities that I, I don't know how they're going to reach those if they don't work with the real estate community um, and, and communicate. So... Well, there's so many topics around affordability that are data driven, you know, and, um, you know, I think a lot of, and, and then, you know, on the, the larger housing side in California, we have, you know, prop 13, which is becoming a hot topic. And I think is, mm. you know, a lot of, a lot of misunderstanding there, a lot of really bad data, um, around it. And, um, you know, one of my favorites is how much, uh, the cities and state lost during the downturn. The only problem with that is if you were to take a line from, you know, like 2000 before the downturn through to today, like it's been steady, it's been steady growth. The problem is, is that there was this big wave of surplus money 
that right. was never real. It didn't really increase the value of real estate. Value Real estate was never worth that much. It created this big surplus that these cities got misspent, honestly. And Negotiated then, long-term contracts based on said. <laughs> and then committed to, right? <laughs> yeah. And so now they're like, oh, we have a shortfall. No, you don't. You wasted a surplus. And, you know, so not that Prop 13 is perfect. You know, I also think, you know, only going up 2% a year when inflation's higher than that isn't good. But, um, you know, I, I think there's can be better data, better conversation, better solutions that come out of good, good conversations. And, and I hope that's something we dig into here as well. Affordability, property taxes, you know, growth, um, all, all of those uh, kinds of, of topics. And I, I love that topic specifically when we can talk about opportunities that they're not thinking of, <laughs> like Main Street getting to be able to dig in and know how to work. I, I think it's just really important that the real estate community at large really get involved locally. I think there's a huge benefit to that. Um, finding the little nuggets of um, opportunity that Wall Street won't ever find because they're not. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you, yeah, if we're going to change housing, you know, uh, policy to help affordability, how do you do that while helping communities, right? Most policies so far are like, oh, let's add a tax that hurts the very people we're trying to help, right? <laughs> right. And it's like, well, what? It doesn't even make sense. And like, I just, I don't even understand where these, these conversations, you know, or, or how these, where these ideas come from. So yeah, I'd really like to dig into all of those, you know, and, and nationally, there's a lot of different things going on. Especially with affordable housing, sometimes it really feels like us versus them, but it's also so highly politicized. It's hard to know which data to trust because it becomes very emotional very quickly because it's so important. Um, and I think just living in New York City, um, I lived in in Harlem where, you know, there was a lot of, I'm, I'm that nerd that goes on YouTube and watches things about uh, project housing and how it didn't work and why it didn't work and how Manhattan almost had a lot of freeways. Like I'm just so, I almost went back to school for urban planning. <laughs> just so I'm fascinated by that. You would have been good. <laughs> well, and what the future looks like. Um, when I worked for that architectural lighting designer, I was bidding on projects worldwide, but I, I'm in love with Vegas because I've just really watched their journey over the last 13 years of what they thought they were going to build, um, what they ended up building. You know, Now we have Elon Musk out there um, building. I, I didn't know this until a couple months ago that they had moved forward with the underground uh, transportation car to the... Can, yeah. Uh, what are they calling that? Um, Hyperloop. No, not Hyperloop. The underground. Oh, um, oh the boring tunnel. Yes. Boring yes. company. I, I didn't boring know that company. had moved forward and I think it's supposed to roll out in the next year. Yeah. Wow. What does the future look like? And it's with all this convergence of technology, it's not that far away. Anyway, um, yeah. we're, we're getting close to, let's see, 45. And I know uh, we had some questions on Facebook. Um, in the future, what I'm going to be doing as we research shows is um, Property Radar has a community. And I'm going to, uh, before we record, We'll post um, the suggested questions and the topic we're researching with links to stories and whatnot. And then if people have questions, they can ask there and we'll try to incorporate them. And the number one question I got for you today is... And questions, and just want to clear, they can ask questions after each episode too, and we'll get back to them in that that same forum uh, at communitypropertyradar.com. 
we're going to be linking the shows on the blog to that community. So yeah, we'd love feedback. And uh, if you have any suggestions on guests, please let us know. Um, we posted it in the community and then I got the majority of the response this time in Facebook since it's new, but everybody's wanting to know from you. Um, COVID-19, are we going to have a huge wave of foreclosures? <laughs> yeah. Having been the foreclosure guy, right? The guy yeah, exactly. in 60 minutes. Yeah. Um, so... Let's start with the, uh, the the fun one. Yes, there will be a wave of foreclosures. Unfortunately, uh -oh. um, we've had a wave of, of moratoriums, right? Foreclosure moratoriums here have, have largely not completely stopped foreclosures. They're still going through. There's there's reasons they can happen. Vacant homes, you know, the moratoriums basically say you can't foreclose on somebody who's been affected by COVID-19. And affected is such a broad category that I think most lenders are being pretty safe there in terms of what they'll foreclose on. But there are always foreclosures in the pipeline due to the five D's, death, disease, divorce, drugs, denial, right? <laughs> and um, so they're always there. They're always a piece of, of the market, right? And um, we completely stopped those due to COVID-19 right? Even the ones that were well in progress, maybe hadn't made a pay for a year before COVID-19 even started and were right about to go to sale. They haven't. And we're going to get a little wave when they say, okay, you can foreclose again, right? And um, just from that, whether having zero to do with COVID-19 other than as a delay factor. So we will certainly see that wave at some point. Um, depends a little bit here on how moratoriums lift and when they lift. Um, could be fairly soon, although I expect to see some extensions on those moratoriums. I think uh, Fannie and Freddie just came out and said they were extending through the end of the year, I believe. Yep. Yeah, they were. So if you've got a... And, and that carried over to commercial residential as well. So apartment buildings, I believe. So they're trying yeah. to keep people in place, but not everybody has a GSE uh, mortgage. <laughs> yeah. Then on the bigger picture, right? So will we see a large wave just due to the impacts of COVID itself? Um, number one is not soon, right? The foreclosure process in most states is a long process, right? Mm -hmm. A year or longer. We saw that stretch out to multiple years during the 2008 crisis. Um, so it won't be right away, right? Um, we're going to see that other wave first, uh, for sure. Um, and there, it is, there, the inventory is starting to pack up a little bit, right? So we will see some there. But from COVID itself, people, job loss, those kinds of things, not right away. The other thing we have to remember is that the regulatory and banking environment fundamentally changed from, at, at, on September 2008, right? Pre-September 2008, if you were a bank, you were required to get rid of bad assets as fast as possible at whatever market price the market would bear. Mm -hmm. So you have somebody not making a mortgage, making their payment, right? You give them... Uh, you know, you let them know they're delinquent, then they hurt, hit a certain number of days delinquent. You start the foreclosure process with a notice to default. After a num certain number of days, you file 
the notice of trustee sale if it's a trustee sale state and this in a in a judicial state it would be a list pendants instead of a notice of default and a notice of foreclosure sale but still you file these notices right and then um the property gets taken to sale and that happens in a very set period of time at that time the houses were all starting to be worth less than what was owed because that was the fundamental problem in the market and so nobody was buying them. Those investors of us down at the courthouse steps were like, I'm not buying that. And so it would go back to the bank. Then the bank was required to sell it because again, they had to get it off their books at whatever price. At the same time, the banks took credit out of the market, right? So those people that would buy that house couldn't buy that house because they couldn't get a loan. So now you left cash buyers, right? Looking for deals. And the market just fell. I mean, it fell fast and it fell hard because the banks were the motivated sellers in the market. What's different this time is that the regulators now, the push is to keep people in their home. And even if it reaches a point where, okay, we got to take this asset back, right? Then, even then, It's don't put excess inventory on the market. Don't drive prices down because they learned something from 2008. We're not going to repeat that mistake, not on a wide scale anyways. Will there be not like all, it's not like all the banks get on a conference call and coordinate. Well, how many properties are you putting on the market? How many properties do you have on the market? I think we'll see some exceptions. I think we'll see some markets with get excess inventory, I think we'll have some areas hurt. We may see more distress in maybe urban areas, less distress in rural areas where people are moving and taking up demand. You know, I don't think it'll be, it's not going to be a perfect, every market's going to go up. Like there's an awful lot of people out of work. Um, We've really hurt uh, folks at the low end. Um, You know, and I think some of the Fed stats, like something like, 40% of households making less than 40K a year have suffered one or more job loss, right? Like that's a devastating uh, impact. And right now through the end of July, at least, like unemployment and stuff is actually making up more than the lost wages because of the $600 weekly bonus. So we're not feeling it yet. Um, but we're going to feel something at some point and, but it, I, I don't see any chance of it being like 2008. Well, the underwriting was, has been so different since 08 as well. We don't have a, you know, you breathe and you get a hundred percent mortgage. Um, it, the, the products have so changed too. I, I, I am a very huge contrarian there. Um, underwriting doesn't matter at all. People's ability to pay doesn't matter at all. What? What? Pray tell. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to dig into that one. <laughs> so, so listen to this. In 2006, five, six, right on the radio, they were advertising a pulse loan. Right. If you have a pulse, we'll give you a loan. Right. Pretty much. <laughs> and and it was a disaster. It was terrible. Right. Right. Now, now think about this for a second. In 2009, if you were a lender and you lended somebody without a pulse, no ability to make a payment, 
right? The money for a home. Mm. And they stayed in that home for six months. Would you lose money or make money? Make money. Right? You'd make money. It has nothing. The only thing you need to worry about on underwriting is the value that you're underwriting the home for. That's hard. If that value is well supported by that local market, Mm -hmm. right? And you know you can get that value back at any time because you've got a good economy in that area and the rest. And even if the economy goes down, you're going to be okay. Like you don't have any risk of loss. Interesting. I, I hear, I receive what you're saying. <laughs> so, so I, like one of the ways, one of the things I would have done after 2008 is I would have tied um, government back mortgages, right? To, cause we've got artificially low interest rates on those. No question. Right. Right. I would have, I'd the cap on those loans, right, to what was affordable to the people that live in that location, right? So you look at median income or bands of income and say, you know what? Loans in this area should be capped at this because that's what people that live there, that earn incomes there, et cetera, can afford. And if we start lending above that, we are putting people you know, over their skis and putting them in a bad position and hurting that local economy. Interesting. Then I'm not saying I'm a free capitalist, right? Okay. I'm just saying if we're going to do government backed, right? Implicit or explicit taxpayer back loans, that's the safe loan that we as taxpayers should be backing. Okay. To the degree the free market wants to come in at their own risk and say, we'll loan more than that them do it well or to the degree that somebody wants to come in and buy in that market and pay a higher unsubsidized interest rate to borrow more than that that incorporates that risk let them do it right instead we put in all these rules about who can make a loan or can't make a loan and all this stuff but we didn't address the underlying problem right so now there's all these rules about qualifying the mortgage and all the rest yep. for mortgages that probably shouldn't even be made that are still subsidized by taxpayers at prices that aren't affordable to the people that live there. Agreed. And that is part of our affordability crisis. Oh man, that's a juicy topic where we're going to have to dig in definitely more. We have a lot of stuff to cover. <laughs> there, there are a lot of a lot of fun topics, and this is why I was so excited to work with you to do this data driven real estate podcast. Because I don't think these things are getting adequate time and uh, discussion. I mean, certainly some of these are, but unfortunately, a lot of the podcasts are like guru. You know, for investors, it's like guru how to get rich quick. Hey, I'm all for talking about what works for successful real estate investors, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, What works for our successful realtor clients, how home services companies, but, you know, more in that, how do you build a strong, vibrant community, right? How do you build strong local businesses? How do you build policies that are inclusive and, you know, you know, make housing affordable, give people, you know, people need shelter, right? Like there's these other topics around this 
that are just so important. And they all, it's full circle. It's all tied together. And I'm hoping we can bring in a lot of really interesting people and uh, get people's, get people to just think a little differently, question some of the things that uh, they just may, you know, take for granted because they've heard it for so long. I like that. Well, we've got a few minutes left. Did you want to cover anything about, I I think there's some fear right now or some confusion, Um, interest rates being so low, uh, inflation, deflation, you know, bubbles, uh, you know, foreclosure is one thing. Can you have an economy bust and real estate do fine? And it's just such a weird time right now. Yeah. So we've been in this, you know, kind of bubble bust thing, right? So I felt it uh, first, actually. Um, I started a software company. I was 18. um, But then through a weird thing, ended up owning a real estate magazine in Hawaii in the late 80s. That's so weird. (laughs) Got really impacted by the debt crisis in Japan. And that really hit real estate in Hawaii and really hit my business. And that was the first thing that said, wow, I can have a great business. I can work hard. I can do everything right and still lose, right? Um, uh, Because of things that I wasn't even aware of and were completely out of my mind. Um, I sold all my stocks at the end of 99, right? I was a tech guy. I had friends and family shares in tech companies and I was heavily invested in tech and, um, you know, and I, I survived that quite nicely. Um, wow. by, by exiting, you know, right before the, the bubble burst, that was another one. And we rescued that tech bubble by creating a housing bubble. And again, I kind of rode that housing bubble up, very fortunate, right? Flipped a lot of houses, made a lot of money. And, but then in 05, like your dad said, geez, we got a problem here. And the bubble burst, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was out speaking a lot in up, you know, kind of after 2008 about the foreclosure crisis and everything going on in economics and economics and the rest. And I stopped speaking in 2016 because I'm like, this is it for a while, right? This, this is, we're going to have a lack of supply, you know, muted demand, slower sales, but still some slowly climbing prices because of lack of supply and natural demand growth just from, you know, birth, deaths, that, that kind of stuff, right? And, um, you know, it, it was interesting, but this, this bubble cycle, I think, is really important and plays into to everything. And, and we kind of finish up, you know, talking about the next thing is going to be a, due to a black swan. Oh boy. So we're even going to get to talk about black swans. Yeah. Oh my God. For sure. Amazing. All right. Well, we are right at the hour mark. So let's uh, wrap it up. What, uh, Thank you for listening for a very first data-driven real estate podcast. And you're going to be able to find show notes, ask questions, and find resources. And we've created a really easy link, datadrivenrealestate.com. So, Sean, thank you for doing our very first show. Well, Aaron, thank you for, uh, (laughs) yeah, putting this all together and making it happen. And I'm so excited to have you leading the charge here on, uh, on, uh, you know, realizing this thing that I've wanted to do for quite a while. 
Pressure's on. Ooh, got to get some good guests here quick. Well, very good. Um, we can't wait to see everybody online. And so we'll see you soon. Thank you.